Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so beyond honored to have JD and Chrissy Roth, and uh, them taking some time out of their evening to share with us some amazing stories and advice on how to bring a whole food plant-based diet to their family. How are you both doing tonight? Great. We're doing great. Thank you. Thank you again um, for sharing your, your story. And I guess we'll just get started with whoever would like to tell us, how did you guys meet? Because JD is so full of energy and I hear Chrissy is amazing as well. So how did you two dynamic duo get together? Hard to remember back that far, huh, Chrissy? <laughs> um, JD loves that story. I'll let him tell it. All right. So I, uh, I, I was a television producer back then as well. And I had sold a show to a guy who worked at Disney. And my partner and I, my business partner, I wanted to thank him for buying the show. So we invited him to a barbecue. So it was my business partner and his wife, me and some girl. And uh, this Disney executive walked in with this beautiful girl from the East Coast. And she had, you know, a graduate degree in physical therapy. And she was beautiful and kind. And like, oh, I couldn't believe it. I pulled the guy over and I was joking with him. I said, there's no way this girl's really out on a date with you. I'm like, come on. And it turns out they were just friends. And uh, I kept trying to talk to her all night. She would not give me the time of day. But oddly, um, after the night was over, I couldn't stop thinking about her. And I kept like hearing her voice and seeing her face. It was like the weirdest thing. And I called my business partner and I said, I, I think I fell in love with this girl. And I know I don't really know her, He's like, well, you got to call the Disney executive and find out if they're really just friends. So I did. He gave me her number. Um, I left her a message. And uh, we went out on one date. Um, and we were essentially living together from that date forward. We were kind of inseparable from that date forward, which was next, what are we, 25 years in May. It'll be. Yeah. We did that date. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That, that is the true story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, after our first date, I went home and I wrote in my journal that I fell in love at first date. And that, and that was like the first great date I'd had since I moved to California for, to go to school. So we both felt the same way. Oh, that's amazing. Well, obviously. And, and we, did, we didn't eat as many vegetables on that date as we do now, but we did eat a lot, if I remember right. I remember <laughs> we the did. restaurant and everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So 25 years, there's a lot of story between then and now. And I guess part of that is, you know, the whole food plant-based diet and Chrissy brought this home, right? I did. I did. And why were you bringing this home or why were you even searching for a healthier alternative? Because from what I understand, you were, you were the healthy one that everyone looked to. I was the healthy one. I was the one that everybody was always asking advice of what should I eat. And I mean, even in my yearbook, I was looking at my yearbook recently and there was this one person had written in there. This is my high school yearbook. And it said, Chrissy, remember when we used to go to diner and we'd all get cheese fries and you'd have broccoli. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I was even doing it back then. Um, so I was very healthier. At least I thought I was as eating an exceptional diet. But I was still eating chicken and turkey and, and a little bit of red meat here and there. And um, I, I guess I was hit over the head with high cholesterol. I have two genes that predispose me to having high cholesterol. And the doctor kind of looked at me and said, you know, you're, gonna, you're probably going to, with those genes, have to go on statins. And I thought, there's no way that's happening. I'm definitely not doing that. So I started researching all I could about diet. And it, once you start doing that, you can't help but 
read everything about the plant, a plant-based diet and how it benefits your health and in every way. You know, you want to try not to get cancer, eat a plant-based diet. You don't want heart disease, eat a plant-based diet. You don't want diabetes, eat a plant-based diet. You know, as Dr. Greger says, you know, how not to die, eat a plant-based diet. So it was, it was pretty easy for me at that, after that to, to switch over. I, I didn't, I love plant foods. I could have done it a long time ago. I just, I didn't know. I kind of like everybody else was a little bit brainwashed thinking I needed to include animal protein in my diet. And so what was, how long was it between the time that you decided to switch your diet to you brought it home and worked on JT to, to change over? It was right well, let's away. be honest. I mean, there's, I, there's, not, there's not much work though, right, Chris? I mean, my world is kind of like happy wife, happy life. So I guess whatever <laughs> she tells me to do, I do, and that's worked out pretty well. It took a little while, though. I mean, we think of it now because it's been about four years, and I think of it now, and it, it seems like it was easy, but then I'll go back and read my blog, which I started when I was switching our diets over, and it wasn't easy. There was a lot of resistance in the beginning, a lot from him. He says that, but he forgets that it was, he'd say, if you put anything green in front of me, I think I'm going to die, like anything else green, or if I have to look at one more piece of lettuce, you know, in the beginning, because it, it was switching, it was kind of really rocking his world at that time, because uh, I had always eaten a lot of vegetables, and he had eaten some, but just not, not as many as we do now, uh, so I think it's a testament to him actually really trying and putting up with it for a while, I would call putting up with it, because he wasn't crazy about it, to now just fully embracing it, you know, after about a year after I was doing it, he was completely in and said, this is the way I'm eating for the rest of my life. So it's, I always say you definitely can teach an old dog new tricks because this guy didn't like beans. He didn't like lentils. He didn't like tofu. He didn't like any of that. He actually hated it. And now he eats it happily. So you can definitely change someone's palate. You just have to keep trying, keep, you know, making them try. It was like with kids, they say you have to have them try something 15 times before they develop a taste for it, if they don't like it to begin with. And I'd say for, uh, you know, 45-year-old male or whatever, even female, whatever, uh, I'd say double that. <laughs> Make them try it 30 times eventually. <laughs> <laughs> <Accept> um, <laughs> absolutely. And I, I think you're exactly right. That is what the studies say is about, on average, about 18 times, even the licking mm-hmm. counts. So whenever I encourage parents to bring their children in and start them eating healthy, that's exactly right. Those small bites do count. And they do. Even with the adults. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you have a blog? I didn't see the blog. I do have a blog, but it's in, it's under repair, I'll call it. I've been working on it. So I don't know if it's up right now. Um, it's, plant-based love, but it's L-U-V, plantbasedluv.com. And it's under construction, so it's a little messy right now. But I think you know, it's definitely, there's some good recipes on there. I'm just trying to streamline it because it's hard to search for something on there right now. So just working on it to make it a little easier to navigate. What was your inspiration to start plant-based love? I think, well, when I was switching our diet over, everybody was asking, well, how are you doing it? What are you doing? How are you making, how are you getting JD to eat no meat? And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to start writing about it. And it was actually very cathartic for me at the time because it was hard. It was hard getting my kids to eat plants because before I would just put a meal down and there'd be a starch and a vegetable and some meat and they'd eat the meat and then they'd pick at everything else. And that was their dinner. And I think a lot of kids eat that way. Uh, so I, I ended up starting this blog to educate other people and also just kind of keep a diary of how it, how it all went down for us. 
Wow. Definitely. You got the credit. The credit for her um, is that she became a short order cook, right? So, and this is just to get us to become healthy. So she'd bring dinner out and I would try it. And then I would kind of shake my head. No. And she'd go back in and toss some more ingredients around. And then one of the boys would like it. One of our kids wouldn't like it. And she was making three different meals every night to try and check the box of one meal that everybody could agree on. And then she'd move on to the next one. When I first met uh, my wife and uh, she made her very first meal for me when we were dating, two bites into it, we both looked at each other and we had to put it down the garbage disposal and throw it away. So it was unedible. <laughs> oh. And so this many years, yeah, sure. I, I kept eating it. If she didn't say something, I would have eaten the whole thing. But um, this, <laughs> this many years later, to have her become, you know, the, the kind of home chef <laughs> that she's become and with the, you know, I think the ingredients are much more difficult to work with and understand. She's gotten to the expertise level now. I mean, she, in minutes, she makes a homemade soup from scratch that is just, it's like, it's better than any restaurant I've ever been to. That's fabulous. Yeah, when I brought it home literally overnight to the kids, cleaned everything out, and my husband, I would get thumbs up and thumbs down. And I think they relish that just a little bit. So like, ah, oh, mom. But uh, I, I get it. That's, it's a tough. So when you, Dee, when she brought this home and said, okay, this is what I want to do, what were you thinking? What were you, what was going through your mind? Well, initially, there's so much tied into um, our kind of history as human beings um, where you have this, um, this love for having a steak with your dad. You know, guys, meat, uh, we just grunt and we eat meat, you know, like that's, that's what we do. Whether you're watching football or guys got together and did guy things, it always involves meat. Dating back to probably when the cavemen were around, right? Um, and so it's so much a part of our evolution as human beings, it's hard to wrap your head around the notion that you're not going to have it again. So for me, it was the emotional connection to the food more than it even was the taste. Um, men, men are generally, um, if you put something in front of them that tastes good, they'll eat it. Um, right. They're not that picky, but if it's not good, they won't. So if it's good and it's not meat based, well, okay, we'll eat it as long as it's good. And I think that's where it starts. If it tastes great, then we have no problem eating it. And so it took me a while to find the things that I liked and, um, and that she could make. Um, and then that went to the next level where now everything she brings out is something new and amazing. And um, we're all excited to get it. Yeah, that's incredible. And I, yeah. I don't think that's gender specific, though. I mean, everybody wants to eat something that tastes good. I think I'll, I would eat things that maybe aren't my favorite because I know they're amazingly healthy for me. But I think there's plenty of men who will do that, too, right? I just think it's everybody wants to eat tasty food. And there's such a wealth of information out there now as far as recipes for plant-based eating and even oil-free oil-free plant-based um, recipes that are incredible. So it's kind of a, not a great excuse to say, oh, well, just eat this. It's really good for you, but it doesn't really taste good because you can make every, all of this taste good, as you know, because you eat this way too. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so, J.D., when you had transitioned your diet, when at that point did, was this an inspiration to start The Big Fat Truth? It was definitely the inspiration, and I think the inspiration came out of um, the fact that I watched her cholesterol drop within a month to completely normal when she was going to be on medication for the rest of her life. So that is, um, to me, that was, you know, a giant display of truth. 
And, you know, she's telling me how to, this is going to get weight off of people. And I'm like, look, I'm the expert. You know what I mean? I'm the expert. I know how to get weight off of people. I, you know, see the cover of people magazine. Yeah. I put that person there. You know what I mean? And I was like, well, I, I don't need to listen to you. And, um, it turns out, um, I was a hundred percent wrong. Uh, and she was a hundred percent correct, which is, it is not only the fastest way to, uh, lose weight. And, and I believe the most helpful way to lose weight. Um, it is by far the best way to reduce, you know, every chronic illness on the face of the earth. And so the people that I deal with are dealing with everything from, you know, everything obesity related, like 24 of 26 chronic illnesses on the face of the earth are obesity related. And I had people that had all of them. And so mm -hmm. from high blood pressure to type two diabetes, which is absolutely a choice, you know, to depression to, I mean, you name it, right. Skin disorders, um, you know, you, you name the issue. And to me, it was undeniable at that point that watching it change people's disease. And immediately, um, I couldn't figure out why someone hadn't done it. And, and, um, and it's complicated, right? Cause once you reverse type two diabetes with food, well then, you know, shouldn't that be headline news? And surprisingly it's not. Right. Exactly. So I guess that kind of gets to the point of why do you think it's so difficult to have these type of shows on mainstream television? Why is there, so maybe for someone like me, who's just a consumer, doesn't understand the, you know, the backstory of the politics of television production. What is the, what is the, the problem or the obstacles? Well, it's, it's pretty straightforward in any business, right? You know, follow the money. And in the end, remember the TV show or the commercials rather are, are really what wraps around the TV shows, not the other way around. So without the commercials, there is no TV. And those commercial advertisers pay a, a very large premium to the television shows on the air, which allow you to be entertained by them. Um, so it's a symbiotic relationship and one that is very difficult to cross. So if I go on a news program and say, I reverse type 2 diabetes with food and here's the proof, and then you cut to a commercial for a medication from a pharmaceutical company for type 2 diabetes, that's a problem. And so, you know, everybody wants to kind of push everything to the middle. And, and so all the truths are not really truths, in my opinion. And in the end, it's very easy to medicate, but nobody actually wants to look at the other word, which is more important, which is another M word, and it's motivate. So mm. it's easy to just write a, a prescription, and we know all know how the system works. If I'm a doctor, no disrespect to you, but if I write enough prescriptions for a certain pill, I get to take my wife or husband on a trip to Hawaii, and a cute girl from the pharmaceutical company comes and buys me lunch, and that's how the system works. And as soon as you get your prescription for your insulin, the first thing they do is they give you another prescription to go to a Saturday morning seminar on how to live with type 2 diabetes. And guess who teaches you how to do that? The pharmaceutical company. So do you think they're going to tell you, hey, if you just eat more fruits and vegetables, you won't need our medication? No, they're not. that's not how it works. And so I don't, I don't want to become one of these conspiracy theorists, but I've now seen it firsthand, and even I'm very surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trust me. So I was in Western Colorado <laughs> when I first started this, and as a physician, bringing this home because of – the situation, how I first discovered a plant-based nutrition and just started using this in a, a little town called Rifle, Colorado. 
I was really surprised at the resistance of my colleagues. And, but it goes to the whole point of you're just pointing out what they're also doing wrong in their own life. So I think that's part of the issue with physicians. Mm, that's so true. Yeah. And the, and the other part is um, they don't want to take the time to educate themselves because I think then they have to understand, you know what? Because when you go through medical school, there's many of us that have issues with, like, I, I call it a God complex, is people feel like they need to know everything and solve all problems. But when we say, you know what, you might have been doing this wrong for the last 10 or 15 years. There might have been people you saved. And I think that's a, a huge amount of guilt that they don't want to, you know, they want to avoid. So I think there's certainly some parts to that. Um, personally, I just couldn't live with myself with not sharing the truth. So that's how I approach it. But um, it is really interesting um, how that does happen. You know, let, me, with the let, me tell you a, let me tell you an interesting story. Um, which I think you'll um, appreciate, which is all the people that I work with are extremely overweight, right? So these aren't people who need to lose 20 pounds. They need need to lose 200 pounds. And when I ask them who their doctor is, the first thing they tell me is they go online and they look for pictures of doctors in their neighborhood. I I found that strange. What what is a pic? To me, it's sort of where they went to school or what type of practice or what they're known for. They all look for pictures. And I, of course, said, well, why? Why are you looking at a picture of the doctor? And they said, because I try to find the fattest doctor I can, because I know that doctor won't preach to me about losing weight. Now, imagine that that's the system that we live in, that these overweight people are so desperate to not have someone tell them what they should be doing, that they go to a doctor that looks like them so they don't have to hear it. You know, JD, maybe you should make a show about doctors getting themselves into shape, because I think, honestly, there are... Physicians have one of the highest suicide rates of any profession. And I, being active duty and, a, and a, so a soldier and a physician, I mean, it's really devastating to see some of the things that physicians have to deal with. I mean, there's so many pressures as far as making sure that you're meeting certain metrics and the government. There's so much administrative burden now with physicians that I think they just don't see a way out. Many people are trying to get out of medicine. And so those who go in with medicine trying to think, you know, because when I was little, I wanted to be a doctor because my sister was sick. But when, you know, you get into the real workings of it, it's just, it's really sad to see that you're just, like you said, a, a sick healthcare system. It's not really a healthcare, it's a sick care system. And so if you can get physicians to actually see the light and feel better themselves, there's such an inspiration and in that it's kind of like rekindles and the burnout goes down or at least goes away in some cases. And see, that's, that's been my experience with my colleagues. And so, yeah, if, for me, it's a matter if you can get physicians on board, that's where you're going to start seeing everything. I think a really rapid change across the United States, but <clears throat> it's just a matter of I think what's it. interesting is they know they're health professionals, right? So right. they know that the system is set up for sickness. It's not set up for health. They know that by setting a good example in a white lab coat, how important that is to the public who looks at that white lab coat as, you know, gospel. And yet yeah. so many of them with the knowledge of knowing that eating, you know, being more plant forward, um, is, is that vital to your health and taking care of yourself and exercising and moving more is probably the greatest antidepressant on the planet. And yet they don't even do it themselves. So mm-hmm. there's a really weird dichotomy, right? We're all chasing the kind of, um, hamster wheel of success, trying to get the most and be the best and do the right. And, and in the end, you know, you, you lose pieces of yourself. And I think people come to the doctor and, and it rubs off on them what their doctor does, what they say, what they look like, all of those things. And I don't know if most doctors take it as seriously. Well, they definitely don't take it as seriously as you do. 
But I don't think a lot of doctors do know. That's the thing. I, I don't think a lot of doctors do know about diet and how it affects health. And I, cause I'm, I'm friends. I have, I'm, a lot, there's a lot of physicians I'm friends with and they don't. You, we mentioned plant-based eating and the benefits and why's and we send them articles and it's all new to them. They said, I can't believe I didn't know this before. How come, how come everybody doesn't know this? I, I, I <laughs> you think you're drug and you say, I don't know. I think you're, I think you're both absolutely right because I think, cause I've always been trying to be healthy. I was kind of like you, Chrissy, you know, I, we always ate the white meat and lots of vegetables mm-hmm. and exercise and, you know, I've done marathons and running and whatever, but when it came to when I'm practicing medicine, I thought I was doing the right thing because I'm following these guidelines that are set, you know, pharmaceutical industry does this research, they publish in their journals and we're reading these journals. You know, we kind of glance over these, you know, I have two journals right in front of me, the American Academy of Family Practice Physician. And the very first thing, it's a pharmaceutical uh, advertisement and in JAMA, the same thing. And so we don't even think about how we're being accosted, being care of our own patients. We're thinking we're doing the right thing, but we're just following the guidelines and we get measured on following those guidelines, but our patients continue to get sick and we just prescribe more medications and they never get well. They don't thrive. And I've learned that's the word I need to focus on is thriving. Um, and, and health is more than just the number. And I, I think that's the part that a lot of doctors don't know. And once they catch fire of someone you know, saving their foot. Like a friend of mine, um, Stephen Lewinda, he's a, he's a physician for Kaiser in California. He actually had a, a patient that had, all that was left to do was actually amputate his leg because he was such severe ulceration on his foot. And they last ditch effort, did a plant-based diet, ended up saving his foot. Um, another lady came wow. off a dialysis, renal dialysis is incredible stories of recovery. And so that's the type of stories. And that's one of the reasons I started the podcast is like, people need to understand this, these, this is typical results. <laughs> this is not, you know, type two diabetes is, is really not that difficult to reverse when you have the power of the plant food, you know, the plant foods. And so it's, it's something you, I wake up thinking about it, sleeping about it. Oh goodness. But yeah, I think you think you're both right though. Absolutely. It is amazing um, yeah, people, when you think about people it. People hear it. Go ahead. No, so it, that just that it's so easy. You know, like that, know. It, it, the food's right there. Like you go to your grocery store, it's right there in front of you. Like if you buy it and you just eat it, how much your body wants to find health. That in less than 10 days, you can reverse almost any of these obesity-related diseases. Mm-hmm. It's, hard to, it's hard to fathom. And I, I'm shocked that more people aren't aware of it. But I, I have to think that it's sort of a follow the money moment that they're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like it was set up. I mean, you couldn't write a better story of, you know, I, I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Dr. Furman. Um, you know, terrorists couldn't do a better job of setting us up for destroying ourselves. I mean, we're not going to have a population for the military. I, I just interviewed um, Dr. Um, Richard Carmona, our previous surgeon general. And he was like, we're not going to have any children or young adults to enter the military. And it's devastating mm. for those folks who are active duty who, you know, because of type 2 diabetes or sleep apnea and these obesity-related illnesses, when I was in active duty, we had, to, we, we had a board and they would actually be discharged from the military because of these chronic diseases. We had no other way of helping them. And in the military, you can kind of force people to do certain things, <laughs> which is a nice way as a physician. But if I would have had this back then, oh, I can only think of all the amazing things could have been done. But you're absolutely Don't you right. think it's almost like a, like a disease that keeps coming back stronger? Like in the 50s, women start to go to work. 
And so they have a hungry man meal. It's like, oh, you stick this in the oven and, and your husband has a meal and you, you know, you, you can come home and I'd have to cook. It's like, okay, no one knew how much salt and things were in that. And then, you know, 10 years later, fast food arrived. And then 10 years after that, it was like, oh, there's fat free became popular. And then what they do to make it fat free, they added more sugar. And then 10 years after that, it was like, well, let's supersize everything because there's no nutritional value. So your body, even after eating the food, is craving more of it, more salt, more sugar, more, 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 more. So you, you supersize, you make it even bigger. And then it's, oh, it's, it's gluten-free. There's always some sort of fad. And mm-hmm. after that fad, like a disease, it seems to get worse and worse for the American public. Right. And the unfortunate thing is I, I don't think our government, you know, I went to D.C. in February with some some other physician friends um, representing a group or a network, thousands of doctors who we want to just change the American landscape where physicians are in leadership positions to dictate healthcare in the United States instead of government and policymakers. And mm-hmm. what was really disheartening is we actually had meetings with our congressman and one of them said i'm going to have to tell you guys the hard truth you're going to have to donate money as much as you spent probably on your plane trip here if you want us to start listening and you know as a constituent and a taxpayer and traveling here as a physician and we're as a group of us trying to you know help them to tell them to tell us that was it was just you know, it, I know I should have known that, but I guess I'm an optimist at heart. But it, it was, I was so seething. Yep. I just had like, I have to walk away. Or I'm going to throw my phone at this gentleman. So I just walked oh out. And, um, but, it's, but, but that is the, you know, that's kind of the situation that we're in. And I, it has to be grassroots efforts. And, um, and that's what I love about what you did with the show. And, you know, people who are willing to stand out and say, no, this is really what we need to do. And on that note, what do you think like for our kids' health? Because that's a whole another subject. Maybe as a mom, Chrissy, what do you think or you had mentioned before we start talking about lunches, school lunches and different things, what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles that we should overcome? Oh my gosh. Well, I don't know if you heard today, they just came out with the new life expectancy uh, numbers. And it's the first time that they've come out with numbers that are now lower than mm-hmm the numbers were before, right? So our generation are not going to live as long as our parents and the kids probably younger than us. They're not going to live. It's, it's really dire. And it, I think, you know, the way that kids are eating now with all the, you know, fast food and very few homes actually cook their meals. Everything's grab and go. And kids are so accustomed to that. They're so used to it and, and they expect it and their, their palates are, set up for tons of fat and tons of salt and you know, not a lot of vegetables or no, their vegetables are French fries. That's what they consider a vegetable. And it's, it's, you know, it, it drives me crazy. It's so sad what they serve at the schools. We were talking about that before that the schools have Doritos and they have, you know, chips and Rice Krispie treats and you know, all those types of things that they're serving at school. And I don't see it. I don't see it changing anytime soon. And I hate saying that because I've been trying to help it change. And there's a lot of people behind trying to get it to change, but their government guidelines that of what they have to serve in the schools. I think, I think there's a big push in California and I, I haven't recently looked where it ended up, but they're trying to at least allow almond milk because right now kids have to take milk with their lunches. And it would drive me crazy because they'd be up there during lunch and they'd have to take milk. And if, you know, if they didn't drink it, they just toss it. 
But, you know, kids would be sitting there drinking milk, even if they don't drink it because they have to take it. And there were no other offerings. It was like, no, you have to take this milk and you have to drink it. So I think a lot of kids are brainwashed into thinking that, you know, you have to drink your milk and you have to eat your meat and fast food's okay because everybody else eats it. Look, everybody's eating it. So it must be okay. Hey, Chris, you remember when we, um, we had Duncan was in school and they went over the food pyramid and they talked about how much protein, animal protein they need to eat. And he held his hand up and said, no, actually you don't need to eat animal protein. And the teacher said, well, you need animal protein to survive. And he sort of pushed back with the teacher and got in trouble. In class. Yeah, he got in trouble. Oh, wow. He what got, grade he was got he in? Trouble in sci- it was in science class. It was, I think, two years ago. And yeah, the teacher said, you know, don't say stuff like that when you don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, but I do know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Obviously, more than you know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He said, I hardly eat any meat. and I'm fine. Exactly. I think like anything, you know, if you educate kids first, you know, when you talk about um, recycling, they started with parents. Nobody recycled. As soon as they taught the kids about recycling, all of a sudden, every house had recycled bins. Mm-hmm. And I think that if, if you get to kids when they're young enough and really educate them, the problem is most of the education comes from government-mandated, you know, p- legislation. So when you have a food pyramid that everyone is supposed to be teaching and has animal protein on it, then there's not a whole lot that, that you can do. You know, but if the government wants everyone to recycle, you can see you start with the kids or, you know, as soon as milk got in there, uh, and we all know how milk got in there by putting, you know, faces of missing kids on the milk cartons, all of a sudden, you know, milk's everywhere. And then you create an emotional connection to food. And when you have an emotional connection to kindergarten, eating a chocolate chip cookie and drinking your milk at lunch with your favorite friend, that connection lasts a lifetime. And so this is, it's specifically done you know, with very sophisticated marketing. You know, when I was 12, in my gym locker, uh, speed stick deodorant was put in everyone's gym locker, and it was free. You could take it home with you. And that was 40 years ago. And 40 years later, I still use speed stick deodorant. <laughs> now, you can't tell me that there's not, not a connect, an emotional connection to that. So obviously, the, the connection to deodorant is a fraction of what the connection to food is. Mm-hmm. So now you have the whole pleasure principle of food, uh, uh, you know, brain w- associated. There's no way to avoid that once you make that connection as a kid, it's very difficult to break it as an adult. You know, I remember sitting outside of the basketball arena with my dad going to see a 76ers game eating an ice cream cone. When I eat ice cream, I still think about that. And I'm 50 years old. So I understand why it's such a difficult thing for people to wrap their brain around, but we all can take a look in the mirror and see what it's doing to everybody that we know. Right, exactly. So on that note, with your history and your experience with The Biggest Loser, what do you find are some of the most biggest, I don't know, food addictions or stories that people tell themselves to get over? Has there been a common theme or just a variety of different things? Well, first of all, nobody is hungry enough to eat themselves to 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it's the, what you perceive as hunger pain is really emotional pain. And everything starts with that. So once you start with the emotional pain, and then you come up with common themes that people have. So my theory is everybody in life is hit at certain times in our life with emotionally impactful moments. Wham, 
your parents get divorced, you're 10 years old, or uh, a sibling dies, or uh, a, a relative passes on, or a best friend. 99 out of 100 people figure out a way to process that impactful moment and move on with their life. And one out of 100 can't. And it becomes arrested development, where somehow they made some connection to the emotional stress they were feeling, and they connected it to food. And once that triangle is connected, and you keep creating the same loop, hey, I feel bad, I'll have a brownie, I feel good. I feel bad, I'll have a brownie, I feel good. When you do that a bunch of times, that loop is, you're done. And so there's no way to break that loop because that's the only dopamine in a day you feel. You think without that brownie or that Starbucks latte, without those things, you can't be happy. And so I think instead of condemning those people, we need to give those people the tools that they need to help process the emotional moment they had, realize that that's the cause of the need for the food that they're eating, and then you just get out of the way and they figure it out on their own. But it, it but takes think, a little while. I, I think, too, what you had asked, which food specifically, and it's all the, the really dense, fat, fatty you know, meat, it's calorie dense foods that are more addictive and there's plenty of science to back that up. And the other real big one, because whenever I ha I'm working with someone and trying to help them guide them in um, taking on a plant-based diet, it's cheese is the always, they like, I can give up the meat, but I have so much trouble with the cheese. Oh, and yeah. cheese is incredibly addictive. I mean, we know that, you know, we have casomorphines released, right? Case, yeah, casomorphines mm -hmm. released when when you eat cheese and it's like an, it's like the same effect as an opioid. It's very addictive. So I, that's why people have so much trouble giving up cheese and, and giving up fast food because they are very addictive foods, just as addictive as drugs. People don't think of food that way, but it absolutely is. And until you cut it out completely and change your diet around, it's very hard to break that addictive cycle. No, I used to joke. I said, cheese and I used to be lovers. I mean, when I was a kid, I remember <laughs> cutting off blocks of like cheddar cheese and just sitting down and just and devouring. I never had a weight issue, but it was just like so delicious, right? Yep. <laughs> and the melted yeah. cheese. Um, yeah, no, I, my, my, and I passed that on to my daughter. That was her last food to finally give up. But, you know, I'm, so you see this when you're, you're describing this emotional connection to food and then you know, in your series, you, you really dive down and, and put people in front of themselves, basically like in your book, you know, put yourself in the mirror and look at that. Why do you think, because doctors are the one thing that everyone has in common, right? There's someone has a doctor or they're going to go see a doctor or they're going to be in the ER or they have a regular doctor because they have chronic disease. What do you think like a doctor could say to someone? Because, you know, we can't be necessarily in your face like that because believe it or not we get ratings and then our production bonuses are based on ratings and then you know what i mean so we almost get rated like a business um there's certain patient satisfaction scores and do you have any suggestions for someone who's maybe bringing this out to someone that they want to help because of their health a, a, a different or a, what is the best way to present this to someone saying no there really is this emotional connection you have with food Let's help. Let me help you face it. What would be a, a good way to do that? Well, the I think best that, delivery system. Well, go ahead, hon. No, no. I was just going to say. I think that promoting the foods that they should be eating versus telling them you shouldn't be eating this because no one wants to hear that. They don't want to hear don't don't eat meat. Don't. Eat, they want to hear 
you need to add a lot more fruits and vegetables to your diet. So kind of starting with the positive first. I don't know if what you were going to say, hon. Well, I was going to say that any message delivered that's authentic from someone with a lot of passion who's doing it themselves is a great form of motivation. And I go back to, you know, we should all, all doctors should have that kind of sentence above their desk, which is before you medicate, try to motivate. And so creating free services for patient groups where you create a population of people that are supporting each other is the best way to get anything done. People doing this alone becomes difficult. But when 10 people who see the same doctor are getting together on a Wednesday night after hours and they see the doctor giving back to their community like that, it's a powerful statement. You know, that, that is like, um, that, that, that's the best way to prosecute change, in my opinion, is to give back to community. And that's what doctors originally were for. You know, they would take that little leather bag and they'd come to your house and talk to you and put their hand on your knee and tell you, you know, how to get better. And you felt supported. There was community support. That doctor was sort of the centerpiece of town. And, and I feel like that's, that's a lost art. It's how many patients can you see in an hour? How high can you get your ratings so you get your bonus? When in the end, a jogging club where you could jog with your doctor on a Saturday morning for three miles, that's a powerful statement. And, um, and so it's giving back to community and creating ways to create groups of people doing it together who all have the same issue at heart. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There is a walk-a-dot program in I can't remember who started the gentleman as a physician and it's kind of spread, you know, cause I started a, um, I worked for a, well, I did, I volunteered at a food bank back in Colorado because one of the patients was one of my patients or his, the guy that ran it was a patient of mine and he had a significant turnaround in his health with a plant-based diet. And he goes, can you come and teach? I said, absolutely. And so what we ended up doing was starting a garden. And so the whole little, it's a little town called Newcastle in Colorado. And they started, we got someone to help at, um, city hall and we got a grant and they started a garden right in the front lawn. And so what was so nice about it is, you know, here we have this processed food in the food bank, but then with that, here's this fresh food that these people are helping grow. And we did teaching and, and all sorts of cooking classes. Um, we've done all sorts of stuff, but you're exactly right. People are really intrigued when someone who doesn't necessarily have to do something and they see someone doing something with passion and they're like, huh, what's going on here? Maybe I want to be a part of it. And, uh, I think you're exactly right. So that's a really excellent. Like, like imagine if, if you went to your doctor's office and there were pictures of his vegetable garden that he had mm-hmm. in frames versus what school he went to, mm-hmm. you know, or pictures of him, of, of him finishing a, a, a race with a medal in his hand. Mm-hmm. You know, those things are all, and he's willing to run the race with you. Those things are all inspiring. And I always felt like the best doctors are the ones that really, you know, don't just say they care about their patients, but they actually really do. And, um, and they're out there. And, mm-hmm. and if they see that, you know, patients are flocking because of that, I think that would help, you know, kind of litigate change all across the board, which is hard to do. I mean, you, you've done it. You know, you decided one day I'm going to just change everything, and you did, and you're inspiring all your patients to do the same. You're in the minority. You should be teaching a class. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I, I love this, though. Before you medicate, instead motivate. I think – there's so much to that, and I think positive psychology should be taught um, to students. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term positive psychology. Um, by, uh, started about 20, 25 years ago by Dr. Marty Sullivan, Sullivan um, from the University of Pennsylvania. And I first discovered it through uh, Carolyn Adams Miller. She's an author who wrote Getting Grit, 
and I interviewed her and it became fascinating because what they have done is they've actually worked with the U.S. Army and they taught them some resiliency training. So basically what they found was that those who, it was a rolling training. So they had a control group, those who hadn't been taught yet and those who had been taught. And they went off to the Middle East. They would come back from Afghanistan, you know, suffering tremendous trauma, seeing things you just shouldn't see when you're overseas. And what happened was when they came back, those who had been taught this resiliency training through this positive psychology had half the rates of PTSD. And it was really fascinating to me. So I'm thinking now, if you can teach medical students or kids um, that type of resiliency to think, you know, how to thrive instead of the negative, um, I think you're going to see some tremendous change. But it, it kind of goes back to what you're describing, you know, is and before you medicate, let's motivate them to find positive change in their life. So I think I think you're already a positive psychologist. You just didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and I know I, I promised uh, 45 minutes, so we're about right there. Is there any advice that either one of you would like to share with the audience? Maybe someone who's thinking about it, they're walking the line, or maybe a physician who's listening. I have a lot of physician in my audience um, to encourage them to, to keep walking the lonely trail sometimes of, of pushing a plant-based diet. I think ahead, once you are on a plant-based diet for, I, I, you have to get through the first couple weeks, you start feeling such a change in how you feel. And that's, that's really the motivator to keep going. So I, I think once you start, you try it, and then it, it doesn't take long to change your whole life around because you just feel so much better. Like I went on a plant-based diet because of my cholesterol, but within a month, I had energy levels off the roof. And every day at 3 o'clock, I, I wanted a nap. No matter how much sleep I had, I was still so tired at the end of the day. That completely went away. And these are all things I didn't even know I was so-called suffering from until I started eating plant-based. My recovery from running long distance, you know, marathons, half marathons, there was no soreness. It's just, I didn't have it anymore. I could do the hardest workout and I couldn't even get sore anymore. So my weight has been so stable over the past four years. I haven't you know, gained or lost. I've just been absolutely like exact weight that I should be without thinking about it at all. So I think, you know, just stick with it and because you will see changes and they're going to be so positive that you're not going to want to eat any other way. And, and you know, she answered it great. So I'm going to switch it up a little bit and just take this moment to acknowledge you, which, you know, I, I got to say from both of us, how much we appreciate someone who's, you know, part of the medical community and is a doctor and is so passionate about change and making people better and is actually living it versus just talking about it. So, you know, for everything you did and, and, and also in the military and giving back to, you know, to, to allow us citizens to live the way that we live, you've given so much of your life, um, you know, not only to the military, but also in medicine and to give back to people. And, and so I think from the both of us, especially around this time in the holidays, it's just a great opportunity to thank you for everything that you do. Well, wow. Well, thank I you. That. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, you know, I, I just, the way I see my life is, um, had some tough upbringing, but you know, I think God has been very good to me and my family and, you know, my husband and I will have also been married 25 years in April. And, um, I've been so truly blessed that, um, that's all I can do is give back. So, um, and again, I, I just want to say thank you for you guys for everything that you're doing 
to promote this and writing, you know, the big fat truth. I mean, that's, that's a brilliant title. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> here it is. And here's your attention. And, um, I encourage everyone to, to grab it and read it. It's got a great 30 day program in the back. And you really, honestly, if you just read for those 30 days, those are some great tidbits for a doctor to share with a patient on, okay, this week, you know, you talk about your 52 week program. This is the small thing we're going to do. And those are really encouraging, simple ways to help someone understand. And when you, when I think when a patient sees a physician working towards that and saying those type of things, it's almost like they become addicted to that. I was like, you know, I need to go back. I want to see what else this doctor is going to help me with. So I say, thank you for creating a, a valuable resource. So. Oh yeah. You're very welcome. I, hope, <laughs> I wish everybody like a great holiday and, and to me, don't let the, the stress of the holidays and all that drive you to food, try to look at yourself in the mirror and change, you know, that, that sentence or that voice in your head and, and let it drive you to go outside and go for a walk with a family member. I've learned more about my kids on a bike ride or a walk or playing ball than I ever did over a plate of food. <laughs> yeah, and put that food, that fruit and veggie tray out. Uh, bring it to your parties that you're going to and put it out on your own table. Every single night when my family sits down, there's a whole tray of cauliflower and broccoli and carrots and red peppers and whatever vegetables we find at the farmer's market. And it's always on the table, that and a bunch of fruit. And they sit down to that and, you know, there goes the, there's no need for the goldfish and the other, all the kid snacks because they sit down, they eat that. And now they expect it. If I forget, or if I'm out and I'm not home and where's the vegetable tray <laughs> and, they, and they fight, they'll fight over the last red pepper. I, that was mine. So start doing that. That's the one change you can make right now. And it's easy and it becomes expected and it's delicious and it's ridiculously healthy. You are so 100% right because the one thing that even now, my because everyone's coming home for Christmas, they're like the bananas, the apples, the oranges, everything that's set out is gone. If you pre-cut it, yeah. they'll eat it and just, just make right. it. It's, it's worth it. It's the best investment in your children's health you could ever make. So absolutely. 100% true. Well, thank you guys again, and I so appreciate you.